If your dream home includes a view of the Italian countryside, you might have to roll up your sleeves for some major restoration work before you can finally move in and cook up some pasta. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, Ferenc Mate explains how the work he did to turn a 13th century Tuscan friary into his dream house helped him discover the joys in everyday life. Every day was kind of like Christmas because you did something wonderful and you looked at it and said, my God, look at that stone. Oh, look at that new window, that door, that beam. And after her tango lessons gave her a new self-confidence, Camille Cusimano packed up for Argentina. She joins us later in the hour to tell us how the tango can turn your life around if you let it. Plus, Fred Plotkin describes the joy he found in Finland in a sauna. To the Finns, it's purely something about hygiene, about pleasure, about relaxation. Making the good life come true from Tuscany to the tango. It's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. It's always interesting to talk to someone who's planted new roots in a new country and is passionate about the results, especially when that someone is Ferenc Mate. He's an accomplished photographer and sailing enthusiast, and he's authored several books about sailboats. His latest book, however, describes his move to Tuscany, where he turned a 13th-century friary into his dream house, planted acres of vineyards out back, and now produces some of the best wine in Italy under the Mate label, with the help of his son and wife. A Hungarian-Canadian-American who escaped communist rule, he's lived in Austria, Vancouver, New York, Rome, and Paris. And now, for the past 20 years, Ferenc has been living in rural Tuscany. He joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to tell us how we can all make a Tuscan lifestyle our own, wherever we call home. Ferenc, thanks for joining us. Tell us a little about what your home's like. Well, we live on uh, 60 acres of uh, Tuscan, I guess you'd call it Wonderland, looking off west and you see about 12 layers of hills before you see the sunset and the sea. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a 13th century friary that we bought. I had this sort of Pygmalion complex of taking a ruin and rebuilding it. And I looked for five years before I found this place, and it's rambling with wings and towers and a creek in front of it. And we actually brought this place and spent two years of absolute hell rebuilding it. But it was enjoyable hell. It was Every day was kind of like Christmas because you did something wonderful and you looked at it and said, my God, look at that stone. Oh, look at that new window, that door, that, that beam. And then um, fortunately or unfortunately, Angelo Gaia, who's Italy's best winemaker, moved in next door to us. We're at Montalcino, which is the, probably the most famous wine-growing area of Italy. And when he moved in, we thought, well, you know, it's like having the Pope next door to you and converting to Islam. So we actually thought we might as well plant some vineyards and... Uh, now we have 15 acres of vineyards and uh, 42,000 bottles of wine to make and sell every year. And it's actually, I wrote another book called The Vineyard in Tuscany, and I was going to subtitle it Our Own Hell in Paradise. But I know it's really wonderful, <laughs> not a guess, of the lifestyle. It's, it's good because it goes with writing. You can actually be outside all day and work in the vineyards or the woods and then go inside and write or pre- pretend to write, you know, you close the door and keep your machine going. Your experience is you're not just passing through as a tourist, as m- millions of people do in that part of Italy. You are actually dealing with the reality of life, getting a fixer-upper and, and redoing it and dealing with the contractors and the plumbers and the electricians and the tempo of life. Uh, there are some frustrations with the, the what is the sweetness of doing nothing? What is that a Italian <laughs> phrase? The, the dolce far niente. Yeah you have to learn that there is no such thing as making a phone call to get anyone to do anything, okay? There's such a thing as making 15 phone calls about the same subject to the same person, but you get relaxed into it. You know, if you have to do something like Christmas, you call it Easter and you say, listen, I have an urgency, you know, some, I have a leak, it has to be fixed right now, <laughs> knowing that you don't really have that and you have eight months to do it, but it'll probably get done by in eight months. So this is a radical new approach to life and it's not working with a split-second timer, that's for sure. In your book, you write, you are hoping to awaken the Tuscan in all of us. What is the Tuscan in all of us? Oh, Rick, I think really that people who come to Tuscany, almost everyone says or even reads the book, they say, oh, you're living my dream. And I think it's basically we have, all of us have this need to live close to each other in a community where everybody knows us, to live really close to nature, like Emerson said, but also to to feel that what you're doing is actually contributing to your own life. Okay, so a lot of things in Tuscany you do but with your own hands. You actually plant your vegetable garden, you go hunt for mushrooms, you get your own firewood, you look after your own house, things that that you get to do in America on a weekend only, you know? And Mm -hmm. uh, I was telling a friend yesterday that 
is such an important part to participate in your own life. Like when I get something out of the garden that I planted or I make a fire out of wood that I gathered, but I'm sitting there eating that meal with, with that, that fire going and the food that I've planted and I'm spending time cooking. The taste of that food is psychologically such a huge thing because you've done all this thing to get it. You know, and you don't think about it, obviously, but it's, a, it's in the back of your mind. It's a huge event. So we have two big meals a day and, and it's, it's almost like life is a celebration. I'm not, not trying to be... No, but it's a harvest. ...guide people into this, but it really, really is. It's just, it's, it's such a wonderful life, you know. And it's a harvest of your beautiful work. Yeah. When I think about that, I just had sort of a, a flashback to, I think, the most beautiful meal I've ever had anywhere in Europe. And it was on the farm of a woman named Signora Gori. It's Negro Turismo somewhere in Tuscany. We sat down in this elegant living room surrounded by pictures of their ancestors who had lived on that farm for generations and generations. Mm. And sitting and at this simple table, we had the fruit of their labor. We had the sausage, the cheese, the wine, the bread, the fruit, nothing fancy, beautiful olive oil, everything right there. Earlier in that day, I had walked through her farm with Signora Gori, and she picked up the lambs, you know, and she, she knew the animals from where her, her cheese came. We could hear the squealing of the of the pigs being slaughtered, and she said, that's our little Beirut. And we'd go up there, and we'd see all the... <laughs> <laughs> and we'd see the slaughterhouse, and we would Stand be surrounded. Stand too, huh? <laughs> it was just great. And we sat down with her family. There was three generations there, and, you know, I can picture people grabbing a bottle of wine like you might with the, your family label on that bottle and pouring that into the glass of somebody who traveled from halfway around the world to share that with you. And there's just some sort of a, a pricelessness about that that you just don't get at the mall. You know, it's, it's really amazing. When, uh, we had an, I had an assistant over there a couple of years ago and went out to dinner or lunch and we took our own wine, of course, because we make one of the best wines in the world, so it's <laughs> natural to do that. And you can do that in Italy. They let you take your wine if you're a grower. Mm. Um, and she said, you know, she's not a, she's the most unromantic person I know in my, in my life, a very straightforward, great editor and assistant. She says to me, you know, it's like bringing the soul of the house with you. And it, the stuff that you create by yourself, it really is like, like it has a soul to it that, that you know, store-bought stuff doesn't have. And Rick, another thing, um, you get such a calm and a self-confidence when you grow your own stuff or you fix your own house or you know how to do these things. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a basic thing. The, the anxiety of... Not being able to fix things or knowing how things are put together is gone. You know, you have this. And I'm not talking about this sort of um, uh, self-sufficiency that you know people go in the woods and, and dig their own cave kind of thing. But I'm talking about sort of a fundamental participation in your own life. Yeah, you mentioned when you grow your own wine or make your own wine, the restaurateurs allow you to take your bottle to dinner with you. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's just it's just unreasonable to ask you to uh, abandon your, your the, the fruit of your vine, right? <laughs> yeah, and you know, it's beautiful. As, as you know, in Tuscany, almost almost every restaurant is uh, family owned, and so you get to know the people, and usually the owner serves on you, and of course mm-hmm. you start chatting about the wine. So the whole dinner becomes a social event beyond the table. It, it involves other people at the other tables or mm-hmm. or the, the people who own the restaurant. And this is this whole community thing that is so reassuring, you know, knowing your baker, knowing your butcher, and and you walk in and, and they start arguing with you about, no, you don't want that meat because you're making soup, you idiot. How can you want, you want this kind of meat you want? And, and no, it's not enough for three people. So you ask for, you want for five, half a kilo. And they say, no, you don't want half a kilo. You want, you want three quarters of a kilo or it's too much. No, and, and it's wonderful. It's, it makes you feel like you actually are part of the world, you know, sort of the sort of anonymous thing where, where you check out through the checkout counter and nobody knows who the hell you are or cares. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Ferenc Maté. And Ferenc Maté is a Hungarian who spent half his life in America and then has spent the last 20 years in Tuscany. And we're talking about lessons you can learn from this in order to live better. His new book, The Wisdom of Tuscany, is filled with wisdom that Ferenc has learned from the actual opportunity to become a Tuscan. Ferenc, without getting too uh, glorious about this, it just seems like we're finding a way to wring more joy and success out of life without having to make more money. And here in the United States, in these, quote, tough economic times, people are looking, we're in crisis to live better with less anxiety and, and, and so on. And and maybe we're completely barking up the wrong tree here because uh, you go to Tuscany and you, you get out of this crisis by getting more close to your community, more close to the earth, more close to what really is the meaning of life. 
Well, I think, ironically enough, the crisis is pushing us back into such wonderful stuff. You know, uh, I've heard that people actually have clothing exchange evenings and stuff where they get together and, and people yeah. who don't... People in Iceland. Get I- Iceland's had the worst economic crisis and all of a sudden they're hanging out in their hot tubs more, getting to know their neighbors. Isn't that great? Saying, There's a silver lining to this, quote, crisis. Thank God for this crisis, you know. I don't think it's anything, anything better, you know. And, yeah. and, you know, people actually get together at bars and talk more about the crisis. At least they, they participate in each other's agonies. You what know? a I think concept. You know, I really think, honestly, Rick, without trying, without trying to better the world, e- either economically or, or socially or even environmentally, this basic life that the Tuscans lead contributes to that unconsciously. You know, if you concentrate on what really makes what makes you happy, okay? I mean, I'm not talking about starving yourself to death or no. growing particular foods or no, anything. I'm talking about hardship what makes you happiest. Makes, I'm happiest eating, drinking my wine, laughing my guts up with my family at the table, having friends over. That is the joy of life. So you, you know, can being, do that or you can go into debt. You know, it's just, a, it's your exactly, choice. It's your exactly. choice. Exactly. And what the pleasure that comes out of redoing your own house. I mean, I cannot tell you. I mean, I knew nothing about stone building. You know, I, I've built a house in Vancouver out of two by fours in Jiprock. I mean, right. stone, you know, like tombstones are the only thing I knew. But you learn, and, and, the, and the stonemasons every day, 50 times, Mati, how do we do this? Because I wanted to do a restoration that was really... Um, Museum kind of restoration, you know, you right. want to use old beams and old tiles and stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, your brain is constantly working, you know, and, and, and you feel absolutely rejuvenated. Every, every day is like, like a celebration, ah, you know, when you, when you're, you, when you're steep you, on the learning when you, when curve. You do, yeah. It's, I mean, compared to the average job where you basically learn everything you're doing the first five or six days and you continue doing that for the rest of your life, my God. That's deadening, Tuscans I would imagine. really have... You know, and you get the results. You get olive oil that people kill for here, wine that you kill for here, food. I mean, the, the food that comes out of your garden or your, your own chickens, I mean, incomparable. Ferenc, in your book, you put quite a bit of importance on this phrase, la vita quotidiana. What does that mean and why is that important? That's it. Just we're talking about daily life. You know, you get up and you look after your place and you, your family is constantly in, or your friends are constantly in touch with you because you know everyone in a town. So that's Most, it. That's the essence of It's mostly multi-generational Tuscany. houses in Tuscany. You know, you have three, right. four generations. And in the mix of that, Rick, I mean, having not just mercenary stuff like instant babysitters available and, you know, grandma does the cooking. Imagine what it does for kids, first of all. You have... You have someone there all the time. You know, I mean, you get coddled to death. Why, why, why are you telling so calm and confident and happy? Because they're loved to death. And vice versa, you have the older people feeling so important. I mean, we have the great-grandmother next door who basically runs the olive harvest, you know, mm. and she goes up on the trees and climbs and picks the olives and tells you what to do and, and screams at you if you drop an olive and leave it there on the ground because it's worth <laughs> so much, you know. I mean— these people are just totally alive and totally participating in, in society. And, and that, that's the vita quotidiana. Just go looking after your own bits and pieces and, and, and living well. I'm speaking with Ferenc Mate. We're talking about lessons from Tuscany about good living, his book, The Wisdom of Tuscany. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. We'll take your calls with Ferenc about lessons from Tuscany in a moment. You've got something I want. I can hear my heart fairly shout It keeps telling me my moment is near That my rainbow's end is waiting right here It's Travel with Rick Steves. You've got something I want Ferenc Maté is a lesson in transforming yourself. Born in communist Hungary, he escaped to Vancouver, Canada at age 11. He's also lived in the U.S., the Bahamas, and Europe. 
For the last 20 years, he's made a home out of a restored 13th-century friary in Montalcino, Tuscany. His book about it is called The Wisdom of Tuscany, Simplicity, Security, and the Good Life. Your chance to chat with Ferenc is coming up shortly on Travel with Rick Steves at 877-333-7425. And our email address is radio at ricksteves.com. Ferenc, when we talk about Tuscany, the root of that is the Etruscan civilization. Do you find there's any sort of Etruscan heritage that's living on today, even though they're 2,500 years ago, compared to the Roman Empire and so on? Oh, absolutely, Rick. Um, Strangely enough, I'm excavating an Etruscan city on our property. It covers two hills. I found a temple and the palace and actually found the arena. Yeah, it's a totally different concept. You found an Etruscan temple in your backyard. Don't, yeah. yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I I can't imagine. If I dig down two feet, I find nothing but dirt (laughs) where I live. Okay, this is the only Etruscan city that actually exists almost in Tuscany because all the other ones have been built over, you know, like Orvieto, Perugia, Arezzo are built in Etruscan towns. But this has been for- forgotten in the woods because we have like jungly woods in Macchia Mediterranea. And one day I found, that the, or my wife said, look at this, this is actually a wall. And I said, yeah, right, uh-huh, <laughs> it's probably a sheep thing, no? So we go on and on and you learn about little by little that, you know, a temple is 20 meters by 17 in uh, Etruscan times. And so we find a temple, 20 by 17. Say, oh, my God. So, so we're, I'm trying to map this place actually right now. So don't tell anybody. Okay, I want just, just between <laughs> you and me. But when you think yeah, right. about, but we're, we're celebrating this good life in Tuscany. And is it just a coincidence that you're sitting on the ruins of Etruscan civilization or do they inspire this in their way? Because my understanding of the Etruscans is for them, life was a banquet and their god was an easygoing really was, kind yeah. of other earth god and everything was cool. They were not conquerors, you know. They, they were very happy living where they were, and uh, they were not the Roman. You know, this is why there aren't many ruins. They weren't into giant construction except for their necropolis, which was dug into the hillsides. Yeah. So what we know about Etruscans mostly comes from, from paintings in there. Uh, yeah, it was a completely different concept from the Romans. It was living life well. Well, eat, drink, and be merry. I bet that was, they were just quoting some Yeah, Etruscan and you know, the, the slaves were actually treated, and, and, this, and they have strange names for slaves. It was like a, a member of the family almost, and right. there was... Yes, somebody told somebody what to do, but the input and, and how they dressed and where they lived was actually comparable to where, where the master lived. Yeah, it's a completely different life. It's, it was based on sharing and respect and living well and not on, you know, 2 or 3% of the population getting rich and the other uh, the ones crawling around the dirt like the Romans. So when you're using Tuscan lifestyles as inspiration for fast-track uh, American lifestyles to mellow out and slow down and smell the roses. Is that uniquely Tuscan or is that Italian in general? How does Tuscany differ from Rick, Italy? I swear to God, it's, it's basically human. You know, I think, I think America, I remember when I was a kid in Canada, uh, we had that same lifestyle. You know, we had, we had a front porch where you sat around and everybody in the neighborhood gathered there and, and we had a vegetable garden. Everybody, the neighbor shares their vegetables because things ripen, they ripen at once. You know, we played crummy baseball with one crummy bat and, and a couple of gloves in a, in a dirt field in the back. We weren't into gear and You're stuff. You're talking about the good old days before the intensity of our life kicked in. And, and today, in this modern, high-strung, global age, in Italy, in Tuscany, you still have two very important institutions, the piazza and the passeggiata. Oh. Tell us about the piazza and the passeggiata in Tuscan culture. Believe it or not, a passeggiata still exists, and it's a thing that you do every night or every evening. Everyone sort of drops whatever they're doing, and uh, they take a walk in their little town. You've already seen everybody in the town anyway, because you, know, you talk to them in the butcher shop and the post office. So it's, you're not seeing anybody new, but it's a different, it's a more formal kind of thing, and you salute whoever you haven't seen and crack a couple of jokes and pass the gossip around, and it's, it's a huge social event, and it, it really binds the community together. And the piazza is where, where most of the good cafes are and where the market usually is. And it's, again, it's, you go there not because you're lacking a supermarket. We do have a, a very small one of that. But uh, you go there to encounter some neighbors you might have missed. There's an interesting saying in Tuscany, and you know how close the Tuscans are in family. Um, I mean, families down in your throat constantly, weekends, and the ones that aren't living with you. But there's a saying that a good neighbor is worth 10 members of your family. And it's really true that the neighbors are loved and respected and, and you share because you're often dependent on them. And, you know, we have no qualms at all going to our neighbors and then borrowing a tractor or borrowing a, f- a forklift. And, and they have no qualms at all coming to us and say, uh, you know, we're out of carrots. Can you give me a bushel of carrots or whatever, you know? And, and it's such a comforting thing to know that. It's not, not just 
cute or fun. So being interdependent is sort of celebrated. That's part of the fabric of your community. Exactly. The human, the human condition is celebrated. And, and, and it's not like you, you actually say, okay, I'm going to live without television and live without this, all these comforts. You don't need them. You know, when you have tons of friends and you have your family there and you have your neighbors that you interact with and you, you're busy around your own house, you don't need all this accoutrements. You don't need to shop and have 14,000 of this and 12 television sets and eight cars and blah, 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 you know? Not that people are poor. Don't misunderstand. No, they've people got are TVs. rich as hell. You know? they, they've got TVs, but they're just not uh, slaves to the TVs, I guess. You've got this passeggiata where you go out and you, you meet your neighbors. You've got this need to go to the market every morning, not because you don't want to have a big freezer in your garage, but because you'd like to connect with your community. You've got the piazza, which is the neighborhood living room. Does this small-town, stable society where people are less mobile and so on, does, it, does the fact that everybody knows everybody kind of enforce a community decency? Does it sort of a constrain people? There is, there's no crime. I mean, you know, we keep uh, our key in, uh, in, at the house where God meant it to be, in the lock, you know, because <laughs> otherwise you lose it, you know. <laughs> I love that. And you, put, I heard, you leave the key in the door where God <laughs> meant it to be. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, I've heard that, you know, there are surveys done and, and most uh, family homicides begin with the shout, where's the goddamn key? You know, so <laughs> uh, you, you avoid these kind of things, you know. Um, the car keys are, are sitting, you know, not in the car ignition, but it's right there by the stick shift because it's an easy place to find. You know, um, everyone knows everybody, and, and, and people are looked after. Of course, there's a huge social structure. There isn't, you know, a massive poverty anywhere. Right. There's, there's health care. There's all that stuff. That you, don't, you never feel really poor. But and, there's, and a, there's a, a safety net when you have a tight-knit community that you wouldn't have somebody just desperate on the There's one story in a book about how unspoken, you know, one family ran into hard times. And the church took a, without any kind of fanfare, took a collection up and a priest walked home with the kid and one of the children one day and uh, when nobody was looking past her an envelope and said, you know, make sure you give this to your father when nobody's in the room so that, mm-hmm. you know, he doesn't feel ashamed, you know. And wow. it, yeah, it, yeah there, it exists, you know. And we live in a country, obviously. The doctor actually comes to your house when you have a problem. And, you know, how reassuring that is not to have him come, but just to think that he can come when you need him. Uh, Candace had, because Candace is Candace, and she had a flu, and she still insisted on going sailing one day, and so she got bronchial, whatever you get, pneumonia. And she had to have injections three times a day. And a neighbor who who knew how to do that because, you know, she has a rabbit that she had to inject once in a while, walked a quarter mile three times a day without, you know, saying, oh, this is I'm doing such a great favor. And it was a natural thing to do. And she gave Candace a shot in the butt because I didn't have the heart to stab her. But you have people looking out for each other. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Ferenc Maté. His book is called The Wisdom of Tuscany. Ferenc, i got to say, you're not the first person to write about Tuscany. That's for sure. There's a lot of (laughs) expats that have moved in. And, you know, you guys all have uh, discovered in an isolated way your own magic of Tuscany and its uniform. You're all enthusiastic about the same thing. And when I think about it, Nowhere else in Europe do people move in and write books about how this lifestyle and this salt-of-the-earth sort of community has inspired them to, to write about that and, and help people wake up to find out what really is meaningful in life. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. You can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. And Noble is on the line in Lummy Island, Washington. Noble, thanks for your call. Hi there. It's nice to talk to both of you guys. Yeah, do you have some comments for Ferenc? Hi, Noble. I think I've emailed you back and forth a few times, no? Yeah, yeah, you remember. Um, I wanted to Not see now yet. Getting there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my wife and I had a, a home birth on Christmas Day, and we celebrated with a bottle of mate wine that I'd been saving for about a year. Mm. So, wow. Now, that is an, a pleasure that I can't even imagine how good that makes me feel, seriously. Those are events that, you know, somebody celebrates something so spectacular with a bottle of wine makes you absolutely humble and thrilled to be alive, you know? I, I thought you'd like that story. Um, anyway, y- your book, A Vineyard in Tuscany, inspired my wife and I to buy some land, and we're going to start working it. And I want to know what is the most important lesson you've learned um, teaching yourself to work the land. You know, interesting uh, to enjoy every step. A friend of mine taught this to me who had an olive grove uh, to work, and he started hoeing like a madman, and the old guy who had been hoeing olives for 50 years was next to him. He said, uh, you better slow down because after this tree, there's another tree, and after that tree, there's another acre, and after that, it goes on and on. And so you better enjoy every moment of your life. And I think that's what it is. If, if, if you enjoy every step, you will be the happiest man on earth, you know? That's great. That means you have to enjoy weeding and digging dirt and, 
and hauling it's fertilizer. It's like the but, journey you know. is the destination. I mean, isn't that the philosophy? Absolutely, Rick. That's absolutely right. the truest words ever spoken. All right. Noble, thanks for your call. Hey, thanks. Yeah. Thanks to you guys. What a gratifying thing, uh, Ferenc, to, to, Can make, you imagine? to make fine Jeez. wine, and then somebody has a home birth on the other side of the planet, oh. and they crack <laughs> and open your wine to well, celebrate it. I love that it. Is, that is, okay, that's it. I can die okay. happy now. Thanks. Right. <laughs> well, let's see if we can top that. Terry's on the, on the <laughs> phone in Waconia, Minnesota. Terry, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. I wanted to tell you how much my husband and I enjoy watching your show together. And Ferenc, um, your book of Indian in Tuscany um, also inspired us. We were newlyweds when we started reading it, and and we read the book to each other um, for several months. And um, we wow. had decided to plant a hundred vines and see what happens. Well, your book encouraged us to go further, and now we have um, three thousand plants and a vineyard, and we're planning to open our winery. Wow! It, the book was so funny because we related so much to you and your wife in every step of the way. But one night, my husband jumps up in the middle of the night and says, "I planted my vines the wrong way." <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> Upside down? What? <laughs> he, well, he was east and west, so we ripped them out and put them north and south. But. The reason why I'm calling today is um, I got so involved with the, the industry here in Minnesota. And now I'm a chairperson for the conference, and I'm going to be organizing a tour for our Midwest grape growers. And um, I'd like them to experience what I experienced when I was in Europe and seeing the vineyards in Tuscany. And I'd just like some suggestions about where I might like to take them and also find out if you would be interested in ever visiting Minnesota. <laughs> oh, I'd love to come. Uh, to give you the best idea, I think if you take a large tour or a tour in a large winery like Bamfi or uh, Frescobaldi, you really get a good understanding of the steps of the large-scale function. But I think you should really go to small wineries as well to... Uh, well, Gaia doesn't let you in, but you come to our house, and as okay. long as there's less than 500 of you. <laughs> no, there's there'll but, probably but be do about call ahead. We don't, have, we don't have tours, but uh, mm-hmm. Candace does. If you call ahead a couple of days, you know, she certainly accommodates everybody. So I think it's interesting to compare a large winery with a small one and, mm-hmm. and, and how things function and how you can do it hands-on, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, the industry here is starting to grow because the technology for grapes has improved so much for cold climates. So, um mm. We're working very closely with the University of Minnesota. California, everything's already been done. This is new territory, so we're very excited about it. And um, That's pretty brave um, of you. Congratulations. Thank you very much. And, <laughs> so do um, come and visit, but call or email in advance, and, and we'd be happy to have you. Terry, okay, good luck. Okay, thank you good so luck much. Good your tour. Thanks keep for writing. Coming. We really enjoy. You're a great, great writer. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks very much. Mm-hmm. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Ferenc Maté, his new book, The Wisdom of Tuscany. You know, the pride in Tuscany really comes from doing things. Um, the craftsmanship is so vital and exists. You know, carpentry, cabinetry, all that stuff is made by either individuals or by mm. tiny, tiny um, yeah. groups of three or four people. And an interesting thing, one of our favorite restaurants, the Maduchetto Fish Place um, down, uh, down, down the road, um, I asked Carmin, who's the, the chef and, and the father and runs the place, totally withdrawn, very quiet guy, but but he worked in France on a boat, on a barge one time, and so he learned how to make fantastic French pastry. He he works 20 hours a day. He loves it. But he's not a social guy. He always sort of withdrawn back in the kitchen. And I say, why, why do you make all these fantastic foods? And he makes fabulous desserts constantly. He says, I love to see people happy, you know, and uh. I think... You know, the people who came to our house and worked in our house, they put their hearts and soul into everything. What they were going to gain financially didn't matter. We have people coming back 10 years later, fixing for no charge a door that might have warped or done something, you know. And You know, this is very interesting point you're making because as a traveler, a budget traveler, you think of Italy and you think of taxis in Rome ripping you off because you're a tourist. But every expate I've talked to who's bought a fixer-upper in Italy and has worked with the local artisans and craftspeople and plumbers and, and electricians has made friends out of the experience, and they find it it really is these people care, and they're, they've got a lot of ethics, and, and they're part of the community. Uh, Rick, I think most craftsmen care more than your friends care. I mean, it's, it's, it's right. amazing. It's, you know, I, I, I had guys come in, and they, they build this huge metal window frame for an archway because mm-hmm. downstairs were all stable, so you had to put a window in it. 
And they actually made a little wooden or a huge wooden pattern. And then they come back in with a metal piece. And there was a gap because the arch wasn't perfect. It was built 700 years ago. So there was a little bit of a gap there. And I thought, well, okay, it's in. Great. He starts tearing it out and taking it back, you know, 20 kilometers to his shop. I said, what are you doing? It's fine. You can just fill it in. He says, all my life I've built good things. I'm too old to start building junk. And he, he just, and he's going to make it right. And he ate the whole thing. He lost all his profit, whatever wow. it would have been, on the entire house. We're doing this giant metal frame, you know. It's like a, yeah. it's like a 15-foot long frame and an arch, you know, with windows and doors in the thing. So it was amazing. I mean, I mean it, it almost brings tears to your eyes, you know. And no wonder you feel at home there, you know. Right. We get a lot of visitors from everywhere, you know. But I hide. You know, I'm so antisocial. I go in the woods <laughs> when people come. <laughs> Seriously, well, you, I do. You, and Candace handles the wine part. But to hear them, you know, it's just okay. really humbling. Okay, well, let's know? just wrap it up by if, if all of our listeners are dreaming about going to Tuscany, uh, they can't all move in with you. What's, uh, what's one little <laughs> bit of uh, advice for you where they can be touched by Tuscany, not as people who are going to buy a 13th century friary and restore it, but as people who just are tourists that are going to be passing through, uh, how can they be sure to get a little bit of the wisdom of Tuscany in their travels? Well, I think the agriturismo are really important. And these are farms, most of them working farms. Some of them are not. Some of them are just sort of estates that take in people. Um, but the, the working farms and small family estates are such a huge shock to most people. And as you said, uh, your biggest memory was going to somebody's house and eating there. Um, you're basically visiting a family. You and can do not, that then in an agriturismo, the farms that are yes, renting Yes, and they usually have you know, three or four small rooms, almost always with their own bathrooms. So it's, a lot of them are like first-class hotels, you know, in, in quality, right. and most of them fantastically clean, and, and the people are amazingly welcoming, and then you get very good food. And I think that's the real Tuscany still, you know. Yeah. It's, even that's changing, but, you know, hurry up and get over there and visit. <laughs> Made to order for an open-minded American traveler that wants to connect with this wisdom of Tuscany. Absolutely, and I think you'll definitely want to move there once you want to visit. You know, mm-hmm. Ferenc Mate, it's a pleasure talking with you, and best wishes with your work. And uh, for all of your fans, thank you for sharing the wisdom of Tuscany. All right, that was great fun. Thanks very much. Yep. Ciao. Ciao. Next, we're off to Argentina to check in with Camille Cosumano. Like Ferenc, she reinvented herself by moving overseas, in her case, from California to Buenos Aires. We'll call her at her home there to find out why the tango took her to South America and how it changed her life. And we'll cap it off with a sauna in Finland. Fred Plotkin shares what he learned about the importance of a good sauna in Finnish culture and how the rituals associated with the sauna can open up your pores to the good things in life. It's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Anywhere you travel, you've got music and dance woven into the culture, but perhaps nowhere on the planet does music and dance have more to do with the essential experience than going to Argentina and getting into the tango culture. Today we're going to talk about the tango culture in Argentina. Uh, We're joined by Camille Cusumano, who's written a book called Tango, an Argentine love story. Camille chronicles a year she spent in Buenos Aires. She was basically licking her wounds after a tough breakup with a partner and finding solace in new life down in the tango scene. This book's a spicy travel memoir of a woman who, according to the, the book, loved, lost, got mad, and decided to dance. Camille, thanks for joining us. My pleasure to be here, Rick. So why did you go to Argentina to get over your the grief that came with your breakup? Well, tango had something to do with it. Um, it started to split us up because he didn't dance at all. And I got really into it. It's, it's very typical that people who start dancing tango get very passionate, and it changes their lives. So... Um, we were having a little breather from each other, and during that time, the way I like to say it is I gave in to the temptation to practice more than tango with one of my tango partners. So tango really is more than a dance. It's a, it's a lifestyle. 
Yes, it does become a way of life. It's it's a great community down here, and, and actually in the big cities in the States, too. I've got a number of friends that in Europe that go to, every winter they go down to Argentina just to be in the tango scene. Now, in your book, you talk about how the first step of a tango is called a salida, which actually means exit. Tell us about that. Well, the salida, it means exit, but uh, the way I feel, the way I describe it is it's the, it's, it's the entrance step to tango, and I think it's the right word because you're exiting real time. Um, I'm not alone in saying this. Tango is very much like Zen meditation. The past and the future don't exist or don't matter, and you have to be fully present to dance tango. It's uh, a wordless dialogue uh, between two bodies, between two people. So you're, and, you're face-to-face, you're chest-to-chest, leg-to-leg. It's, it's a complete embrace. It's quite steamy physically, and at the same yeah. time, there's a, there's a sort of a philosophy with it, too, and that you find a, a kind of a tranquility and a, and a peace in, in the tango. Yes, and I go into some of that in my book, but as I've studied it more and more, you're actually not face-to-face, you're, you're head-to-head, because you, it's the one partner dance where you don't look at each other, ah. where you communicate through, um, the leader gives you signals through his body, and, and there are real steps. But I, I think um, what makes tango so unique is the uh, very genetic material of it goes back to the lowest rungs of society invented the dance when all they wanted was to satisfy that most primal urge for love and intimacy. They were the gauchos and the immigrants. Let's talk about this now in the context of travel, because uh, if you want to experience this tango scene, is it, is it fair to say Buenos Aires in Argentina is the capital of the tango culture? Absolutely. Now, th- Absolutely. now this city is very inexpensive. It's got a Paris-like elegance. It's sort of a happening place now with legions of artists and creative people coming together here. It, there must be a, a heady kind of uh, ambience right now in that uh, Buenos Aires scene. Yes, it's a well-kept secret. I don't think we should tell everybody. Okay, just between you and me here, yeah. Tell me, tell me more about me. what it's like to be in Buenos Aires right now. I think I have that conversation uh, at least once a week, like it's the best-kept secret. It's a very stimulating city. Um, I think it's kind of a cross between New York. It's, it's an all-night city, even more so than New York. Um, it's kind of like San Francisco, which is my home base in the States because it has neighborhoods or barrios, as they call them. Uh, and it's like Paris, because the architecture is, um, well, they wanted it to be like, like France when they built the city. So there's a, a lot of wonderful Italian Renaissance and French architecture. And now as a traveler, you could just kind of look at the architecture, or you could connect with the scene, and it sounds like to get into these dance halls. What are those dance halls called, milongas? Milonga is the name of the place where tango is danced. Okay, and there's, uh, is any tourist welcome to go into a milonga? Absolutely, absolutely. And um, I, I'm always sorry that people feel intimidated, I, and I take a lot of non-tango people to them to show them that it's intimidating because um, it looks like people are, you know, they're, they're quiet with each other when they're dancing, um, but you can sit and watch, and then you can see the whole... There's a lot of etiquette that goes on. It's, it's pretty easy to get up to speed on. I go into some of it in my book. The United Nations recognized uh, tango as part of the world heritage, right? A dance. Yes, I'm glad you mentioned that. UNESCO protected it, um, yes, as an important part of humanity. People ask me, how do you protect a dance? And I guess the answer is by, by doing it, by teaching it. It's almost a way to... Express your Argentineness, I would imagine. Sort of. It's, you know, uh, probably the same rate of people here in Argentina dance tango as in the States, but everybody in Argentina knows the music. And for a long time, tango was just music. It wasn't the dance for people. Who leads in a tango, the man or the woman? Well, here the man leads more, but as tango spreads around the world, women who want to lead can lead. I personally am a dedicated follower. I love the follower's role, and it's, it's not as macho as you think. What's the follower's role? Well, we've, we're told to not anticipate, to wait for the leader to give us the cue for the move. And I like to call the leader the starter, because he mm-hmm. does start the dance. He, he does, you know, do the salida, the exit from real time, the entrance into the dance. 
But then so many, um, not so many, but the really good dancers say to me sometimes, I'm following you. It becomes synergistic, I guess. It's a give hmm. and take. Wow. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm speaking with Camille Cusumano, who's written a book called Tango, an Argentine Love Story. Camille's website is tangowriter.com. Camille, in your book you wrote about dancing with one man, and right away it occurred to you he's too young and too shallow for deep tango. What did he mean by that? <laughs> um, he hadn't suffered enough, I guess. You hear this a lot. Um, there's, there are different styles of tango. There's milonguero is the kind I mostly do down here. Nuevo tango, which is characterized by more open embrace and the young people just showing off doing all the fancy steps okay. like you see on the show tango. So you wanted a tango dancer like a blues singer, somebody who has a life story that can come across in their art? Oh, I couldn't have said it better, yes. So there's yes, not... Beautiful, beautiful. So <laughs> young is not a good thing in tango necessarily. Having lived is a good thing in tango. Maybe the way I would say it is that old is a good thing in tango. The old, old guys can be so good, the old women. Yeah. There's an 80-year-old woman here that the young guys in, in this one milonga on Sunday love to dance with. Let's talk again about a tourist, because it would be intimidating to me. I would go down to Argentina and go to one of these dance halls, and these people know how to dance. And I'm sure a woman tourist would be more than welcome on the dance floor, and people would put up with her relative gawkiness because, you know, women have it easy that way. Uh, what about men? Uh, actually, I may have misled you if, if that, that's not true. It's better that even the woman uh, know a few steps. To it's, it's true. It's easier for the woman to follow who's not very skilled than it is for a man who's not skilled to lead. So um, you should have some lessons before you go into Milonga. And I, I guess I was saying go to the Milonga to watch. But you could prepare um, for your trip. If you're going to go to Argentina, it might make sense to take some tango lessons here in the United States before you fly south. Yes, yes, I would recommend that. And the teacher will usually give you the etiquette, like the cabeceo, how the men... Yeah. It yeah. seems like this is just steamy, sexy Argentine culture. I mean, you write about having strangers press against your belly as you're dancing. <laughs> that was that young guy who didn't know better. <laughs> oh, so that's, that's not a routine thing? No, it's really not. There's so much mythology and um, stereotypes that don't fit. I... I Okay, so it's a genteel kind of atmosphere where, where it's not just going to be brash and crude and sexual. No, yes. Because uh, yes, you said you had not many lovers but thousands of partners, and each of yes. your dances took you to a different kind of encounter. So that was really a cultural encounter and an interpersonal encounter more than a sexual thing. Yes. You know, I think if people come here, they're looking for sex. If, if that's all they want, they'll find it. But um, there are so many people here, it's about the dance. It's about the connection on the higher level. And it's a very refined dance now. I'm talking with Camille Cusimano. She's written a book called Tango, an Argentine Love Story, giving us a guide to Argentina through, I think you could call it, its national dance. Camille, if you're a tourist and you don't know how to dance, but you're going to a dance hall, describe the experience to us. What would you do to be comfortable there? So if you don't dance and you want to go to a, a tango salon, you would go to watch when you open the door, it's like opening an oven door. You feel the heat of the place. And a host or hostess who is the organizer of this milonga will seat you. And you might tell them that you don't dance, so you want to just watch, and that's perfectly acceptable. And then you want to be careful where you put your eyes, because if you're a woman, the men will look at you and, and kind of um, raise their eyebrows or do a little head nod, which means do you want to dance and they expect you to meet them on the dance floor. And women can do it to men. It's, it's pretty equal now. Women invite men the same way. So keep moving your eyes around. Look at the floor. Look up. Um, unless you see somebody who you want to uh, be asked to dance with. Unless you want to dance, yes, yes. If you're, if you're a dancer and you want to give it a try, um, do look at the men uh, or the women and, you know, do the eye lock. You, you'll know when it happens. Is a woman as likely to ask a, a wallflower man to dance? Is that likely to happen? I would say yes. Um, I, generally, women like to wait for the men in this culture, but then, you know, there's so many foreigners, and they know the foreigners play by different rules. So. Okay, so the tourist is more yeah. than welcome, and you can uh, learn a little bit about it and find yourself swept away in the tango scene in Argentina. Mm -hmm. Totally, Absolutely. Camille, one last uh, tip for any American who's 
pondering going to Argentina and uh, making the tango scene as you have? Definitely don't be intimidated by trying tango. Just get a lesson or two from a teacher you feel comfortable with and give it a try. It's, it'll change your life. It'll change your life. I keep hearing that about tango. Tell me how. Well, I mean, you've um, left your life and started a new life in Argentina. This, this is a powerful thing. How does it change your life? It uh, gave me an incredible self-confidence. I, I found the center of the universe and the center of myself, and I feel very connected to people in a way that uh, exterior things may not have changed, but I can, I can take anything. Learning to live in the moment is what it really gave me more so than even meditation, which I had done for years. Camille Cusimano, author of Tango, an Argentine Love Story, thanks for teaching us a little bit about Latin America. Thanks for having me, Rick. My pleasure. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I want to talk for a moment about the sauna. And when you travel in Scandinavia, everybody's uh, wondering about, where do I take my sauna? When I was in Finland, my guide took me to the rooftop of a restaurant with a nice balcony overlooking the town. And below me, on the roof just across the way, there was the top floor of a business, and it was filled with well-fed businessmen cooked like red lobsters in their sauna. And she said, every business provides a sauna. I realized later that at the National Finnish Opera House, there's two saunas that are kept fired up all the time for uh, musicians and patrons of the arts to enjoy a little soak. I'm joined by Fred Plotkin for an insight into the sauna of Finland. Fred, thanks for joining us. Thank you. When I was talking about that little introduction to the sauna, what was your response? Is it Finnish? Is it is it Swedish? Uh, why is it such a big deal? Well, it was born in Finland, and sauna to them is sacred, and I mean that very seriously. In ancient times, childbirth took place in the sauna because it was warm and it was hygienic. When people died, they were dressed for burial in the sauna. There is an expression in Finland, first build the sauna, then build the house, because the sauna is what is life-giving. People can often keep food in there. It is the place where everything is maintained through the cold winters, Hmm. and it's the place where you clean yourself and then... After that, you go for a dunk in the Baltic, in Mm. a swimming pool, in the shower. And assuming you don't have a heart condition, uh, that is the best thing to do. Anyone who goes to Helsinki should get a Helsinki card, which provides transport, but also admission to the Finnish sauna society, where you can learn about the different types of sauna, five degrees of humidity, the cold soaks, the hot soaks, and then the piece de resistance, you can be scrubbed. Mm. You have not lived until you've had a kindly old Finnish woman scrub you like you're a little baby, and you feel so content after that you go right to sleep, the best sleep of your life. Now, Fred, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I'm trying to analyze the uh, economics of the sauna, and my hunch is in a less affluent time, there were more public saunas, and today, in an affluent age, when the tourist goes to Finland, the saunas that he or she will be able to uh, enjoy are either in the hotel or on the cruise ship coming in, but most people are wealthy enough to have a sauna in their home. Consequently, there's not so many corner saunas anymore, but if you go to a poorer or a working-class neighborhood in, in the suburbs away from the center, that's where you might find a traditional public sauna. There are a few left. Um, my favorite is Ironkatu, right in the middle of Helsinki from 1928. But there's another one called Kotiharju, which is a wood-fired sauna, the last one that's public in Helsinki. And this is where working-class people go because once upon a time, they did not necessarily have showers in their homes, so they went to clean themselves at the public sauna. There is no whiff of sexuality the way there is in lots of other countries with sauna. To the Finns, it's purely something about hygiene, about pleasure, about relaxation. Now, I took the bus out to Kotiharju one afternoon, and it was quite a powerful, interesting experience for me. There wasn't any English there. It was definitely a working-class, functioning sauna filled with people who were there to, to do their soak and their relaxation. And I went in, and I remember being kind of awkward. I felt sort of like... Um, 
kind of like a naked Woody Allen without his glasses. And I was sitting on this concrete step, surrounded by steam and and knotty wood uh, paneling and rusty railings and naked fins. And everybody had long, stringy, blonde hair pasted to their face. And I remember looking out and thinking, wow, I have no idea what century I'm in, but it's definitely Finland. It was a fascinating, wonderful experience. It's genuine. And in a time when so many things are created as prepackaged experiences, when you find something genuine, you do everything you can not only to be a part of it, but do everything you can to save it. These are landmarks that are part of our culture, not just Finnish culture, but world culture. And then afterward, I decided, in the spirit of Fred Plotkin, to embrace the sensuousness of it all, to get that rub down you talked about. And this woman who was wearing like a, a fisherman's plastic bib, she put me on her table. I felt like a salmon being gutted. She knew how to hold my slippery arm with all the suds and so on so she could pull me up and scrub me. Dirt was coming off me in Tootsie Rolls with her with her Brillo pad mitts. And she worked me over and I was, I couldn't, I can't explain how relaxed and clean I felt after that. That's the scrub down you're talking about? Yes, but also as Americans, we're taught to be in control of our situations. Everything we learn in school is about control. And this is about giving up all control and just being completely treated as as an object of love and affection and not having any means of giving it back. You just give in and you feel blissful. There's no other way to say it. You know, that's a very interesting concept, giving up control. There I was. I mean, naked. Everybody was naked there. I'm laying on this big wooden picnic table, and this woman, who's just very strong and knows what she's doing, just works me over. And I just said, all right, here I go. Uh, When in Rome, do as the Romans do. When in Finland, let's go to the sauna. The Romans wouldn't do that, I assure you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, when you go to Finland, you've got an experience waiting for you. We would recommend that particular sauna, I think. Koti Haryu. Koti Haryu. But also the Finnish Sauna Society, which is just outside of town and reachable on the public transport, Ah. is another one that maintains that tradition. I guess if you're going to do a sauna in Finland or Sweden, you would would go Finland? Yes. All right. Fred Plotkin at fredplotkin.com. Thank you so much. Thank you. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Special thanks to our colleagues at the Radio Foundation in Manhattan for engineering help today. I'm the show's producer, Tim Tatton. Join us next time for more Travel with Rick Steves. La Vita Quotidiana. Rick Steves teaches smart travel to Scandinavia, the Baltics, and beyond. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours, a monthly travel newsletter, and a world of information to help you turn your travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To gear up for your next Nordic adventure, begin your trip at ricksteves.com.